this time of year always gets me a little nostalgic. It's graduation season, isn't it? So I think back to high school graduation, college graduation, and it always brings back some fun memories. It's also the time of year where we go to grad parties and we get to mooch on everyone else's free food, right? It's always kind of nice. Don't have to make dinner like, you know, six or seven nights of the spring. But when I think about graduation, it reminds me of things that often senior classes do in their senior yearbook, something that maybe are called senior superlatives, you know what I'm talking about, where you throw this poll out to like the whole school or the entire senior class and you vote on like who is the most likely to be president, who is the most likely to get married, who's the cutest couple, who's the most likely to end up in prison, like those sort of things, right? Um, So I was doing some thinking about some senior superlatives from some people on our young adult staff. So along with these very truthful, highly honest superlatives that we came up with, um, I thought maybe some senior pictures would be fun too. So, What you got? Now, he's not on, on staff uh, with young adults anymore, but you know him really well. Let's see this first picture of Pastor Andrew as a senior in high school. So, Aww, Aww, baby Andrew. There's Andrew in front of his graduation cake. He matches the his cake. In his golf polo. So looking at this, I I don't know if you knew this, but if you went back and looked at Andrew's yearbook, here's the superlative he was awarded, most likely to preach the world's longest sermon. Burn. I bet Andrew can feel that burn from here. He probably can. Uh, How about the, you want to talk us through the next one? Can you tell we scripted this so thoroughly? Oh, our beloved Bianca. Let's see it. So, aww. Okay, she was given an actual superlative in high school. We're not making this up. Like no, she this received is real. one from her yearbook. Best laugh. Yeah. Let's yep. hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> Actually, if you have heard, like a mix of a tea kettle and Chewbacca. <laughs> From the back of the room on any given Monday night, it is Bianca McSwain. I wish I could mimic it, but I would really embarrass myself. So I've done that enough. I looked over at my wife, Hannah, in the 1030 service yesterday as Jared was making this awkward third wheel joke. And um, like, I looked at Hannah, I was like, yeah, that was Bianca, like laughing. I could hear her in the, could identify the whole auditorium. So. Total opposite side. But, you know, since that one's not as fun... Um, some of you know Bianca moved to Wisconsin a couple years ago. She lived in California her entire life, and when she moved here, she found this love that she had. She never realized she had. She loves cows. She loves cows, and uh, so we decided that Bianca was voted most likely to meet and marry someone from FarmersOnly.com. Aww. What an utterly adorable couple. <laughs> Have you ever heard such good cowpunks? You're done. Stop, me! stop. Uh. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was quick, Okay, Alex. moving on, moving on. We so, have... go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. I was skipping. I was got really excited. You got excited? Okay, I'll do the next one Please. and then <laughs> we all love our beloved Brian Niemeyer. Let's see a picture of Brian as a senior in high school. 
There he is. (laughs) Party animal. He had short hair. (laughs) Brian, when did you grow out your hair? (laughs) Okay. So um, looking at this picture, it shouldn't surprise you that Brian was voted the most eligible bachelor. And if you didn't know, Brian's actually won that award for the last 30 years at Highland Community Church. So... The poster child of ChristianMingle.com. <laughs> that He's was doing... not in my notes, just so you know. That was all Maggie. Highlighted. Okay, last. Um, uh, go ahead. The best. Oh, this is just so good. Oh! Okay, I have three superlatives for Sam. Okay. Most likely to sing Baby by Justin Bieber in the shower. In the shower. That's fair. Most likely to peak in coolness at age 30. So just give it another decade, Sam. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. And then most likely to include Just for Men on the Walmart list for the five chin hairs. (laughs) You know... Because I'm a kind person. Uh, so kind. So kind. I, I wanted to make sure that Andrew was okay with, you know, the picture in my superlative. I didn't want him to be surprised because I know what you were going to do. You're going to go to Andrew and be like, you won't believe what Sam said about you. So I wanted him to know that ahead of time. So I showed him my picture. And here's what Andrew came up with for my superlative. <laughs> That's fine. Bring you it can... back. <laughs> Around two. <laughs> Was that necessary, Milena? Come join me. Here's what, here's what Andrew said. Most likely <laughs> to have bad facial hair. Oh. So I was like, thanks, Andrew. So, um, thank you. You're just going to awkwardly, yeah, awkwardly leave. back. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thanks for laughing with us and uh, humoring our senior pictures. Um, We're going to talk about Moses tonight. And if Moses would have received a senior superlative, here's what it would have been. The least likely to lead a nation of two million people out of slavery from the most powerful king in the world. That, I guarantee, would have been Moses' superlative. You know his story a little bit at least, right? He was born in bondage and slavery. There was this death sentence for all baby boys. So for some reason, the Holy Spirit. His mom sent him down the river in a basket. He gets discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and gets raised as this prince in the king's house in Egypt. But he kind of has two lives, doesn't he? He's Jewish by birth, by ethnicity, so he's not liked by the Egyptians, but he's raised in this really wealthy Egyptian home, so he's certainly not liked by the Jewish people, so he doesn't really fit anywhere. But he turns 40, and remember the nation of Israel, they're in slavery in Egypt, they're forced to do all this manual labor, and he wants to become this protector, this hero. So he sees this Egyptian foreman beating Israelite, so he walks up, intervenes, and, you know, accidentally murders the Egyptian. Moses thinks he gets away with it until he doesn't. Pharaoh finds out about it. What does Pharaoh want to do? He wants to murder him. He wants to kill him. So Moses runs for his life, runs all the way to the land of Midian, spends the next 40 years in the desert working as a shepherd for his father-in-law. So by the time 
God calls Moses into ministry, do the math, he was how old? 80 years. Imagine an 80-year-old leading a nation of 2 million people, and leading is one thing, but hiking through the wilderness, walking up mountains, going into the most powerful man in the known world, confronting him and telling him to let his best workforce leave, that's a stressful job. He was not young, and he had a rap sheet. He accidentally killed the Egyptian. He ran for his life. I mean, this is not the type of guy that I would pick on my recess kickball team. Certainly, he's not the guy that we would pick as the one to lead the people out of Egypt. He's washed up, an 80-year-old ex-con shepherd. And to make matters worse, he couldn't even speak in front of people. Not a good choice for a leader. But we see something in this passage tonight that we see over and over again throughout Scripture, that God chooses the weak of the world to shame the strong. God chooses what you and I might consider foolish to shame those who the world calls wise. Because when God uses someone who's weak, who's powerless for his purpose, for his glory, then at the end of the day, who gets the credit? God does, not us. And that's the story, that's the life of Moses in a nutshell. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Our series for the summer is called Mountains. We're going to these different mountaintops where these individuals have these experiences with God. And tonight, Moses is the man on the mountain, and the name of the mountain is Mount Horeb. Look at Exodus 3 verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay, let's pause there just to understand a little bit of the geography, a little bit what's going on. But before we get to the geography, it's important to note that for an Egyptian, the worst possible job was a shepherd. It was the lowest of the low, the bottom of the barrel. But when Moses moved from Egypt to Midian, started working for his father-in-law, he had the job of a shepherd. That teaches us likely that when Moses left Midian, he rejected his Egyptian heritage and started living again as an Israelite. But then it says that he was in Midian, he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Alex, why don't you throw that map up on the screen? Scholars have worked for years to try to figure out where this mountain is. Mount Horeb actually has a couple different names in Scripture. Here it's called Mount Horeb, called the mountain of God. It's also called Mount Sinai. Spoiler alert, we're coming back to Mount Sinai. But as you can see over on the right part of the screen, there's Midian, that's present-day Saudi Arabia. That's where Moses would have fleed from all the way up uh, by the Nile River, all the way over to Midian. But then it said, the text said that he went to the west to find food for his flock. So he went around that body of water and probably went somewhere into here, into the Sinai Peninsula, um, it's hard to know exactly which mountain in the Sinai Peninsula is Mount Sinai. Scholars have tried to figure it out for decades, for centuries, really. The traditional site is a mountain called Jabal Musa, uh, which, Alex, you can throw that up on the screen. This mountain is 7,500 feet above sea level. You can tell, <laughs> not a very fertile area. Um, I'm not sure why you would take a flock to this mountain to find food, but for some reason, Moses is in 
an area of the world that was pretty dry. It looked a lot like this. Um, this is one of the possible sites for Sinai, but either way, he was likely in the southern part of that Sinai Peninsula. He traveled a very long ways to find food. And for Moses, this was just an ordinary day. Ordinary shepherd day is 80 years old, and as he approached this mountain, he was a failure. He was a killer. He was a runaway. He was an exile. He was a lowly shepherd. And don't forget, he was 80 years old. Verse 2 in our text, Exodus 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So this certainly wasn't Moses' first experience with the burning bush. There were two things that grew in the desert, rocks and small shrubs. That was it. And only one of them worked as good kindling for the fire. Certainly not the rock, right? Now, if you've ever been in the desert, you know that it's really hot during the day, but there's nothing to hold the heat at night. So at night, the temperature drops. It was likely that Moses had used a number of these bushes to keep him warm on a nice cold desert night. But something was different about this bush. He looked over and usually the fire would consume the bush in seconds or minutes, but, but not this bush. The fire was huge, but the bush wasn't going anywhere. And he does what any logical person would do. He's like, I've, I've got to go check that out. So he turns aside and he walks toward the burning bush. Verse 4, and when the Lord saw that he turned to see, Moses called, uh, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And you can see verse four started with the Lord, but verse two started with a different title, right? The angel of the Lord. You notice that? A lot of people have debated who the angel of the Lord is throughout the Old Testament. I think at least in this text, the answer is pretty clear. The angel of the Lord here is God himself. Maybe a better translation would be an angel or a messenger that is the Lord, that God had at least in some way revealed himself to Moses indirectly through the fire of the bush. This is God talking to Moses. Now, some have identified the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament as Jesus pre-incarnate, Jesus before coming to earth. That's certainly possible. Um, it's interesting that we only see references to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Once we get the New Testament and we get to the incarnation, once we have Jesus, there's, there's no more angel of the Lord. But it's hard to know exactly in this text. Either way, this is what we call a theophany, God revealing himself to humanity, to man. And Moses has an experience with God himself. It's not going to be the first time that he gets to speak with God virtually face to face. But God looks at Moses and says, take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. Now, that sounds kind of strange to us, but in no way would it have been strange to Moses. When you walked into the house of a person who is a superior, the first thing you do is take off your shoes. It was a sign of respect when you entered into their home. Now, did you see what Mount Horeb was called? Verse 1, the mountain of God. You see, in some way, this was kind of like God's house. It was his home. And as a sign of respect, Moses takes off his shoes because he's entering into the, somewhat, the presence, the home of someone who's way superior to him. But then God says, don't come any closer. He creates a divide between himself and Moses. We see that over and over again throughout the Old Testament, don't we? Because there's such a gap, a divide between God's holiness 
in my sinfulness. That we see even the, the Holy of Holies and the divide the curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple. We see that in Exodus 19 in the text we're going to look at in two weeks, that God creates like this fence around the mountain so the people don't come too close. That there's a divide between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Again, we see that in this text. But look at verse 6. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. Moses knew who he was talking to. He, know, he knows that he was in the presence of the Almighty. But then as the text continues, God reveals to Moses something that he already knows. God says, Moses, my people, the Israelites, they're in slavery. They're in bondage in Egypt. Moses knew that. He lived that. He saw it. He, he even tried to intervene and it didn't work. But God reminds Moses, I haven't forgotten my people. I've seen their affliction and I'm going to come and rescue them. And I can imagine that Moses is getting fired up. These are his people. These are his brothers, his sisters. But there's a catch. What does God say? Moses, you're the guy. You're the one who's going to lead my people out of Egypt and take them home. And Moses starts to get a little defensive, doesn't he? Look at verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But God said, I'll be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I've sent to you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You know, when you and I read verse 11, it sounds like Moses is pushing back at God, doesn't it? But that's actually not the case. This was not a posture of rebellion. This was a posture of reverence, of humility. Moses is looking at God and saying, who am I? I'm not worthy. Why are you talking to me? Why, why would you pick me? This is a posture for Moses of humility. But then God gives Moses a sign, doesn't he? He says, you're going to come back and serve me on this mountain. Mount Oreb is Mount Sinai. This, isn't gonna, this is not Moses' only mountaintop experience with God on this mountain. But after that initial posture of humility, then Moses <laughs> starts to push back a little bit at the Lord. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What am I to say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That sounds like a strange question, doesn't it? Moses is asking, God, what's, <laughs> what's your name? But that wouldn't have been strange for Moses' audience. Remember, they're living in Egypt. Egypt is an incredibly polytheistic culture. They have gods for everything. There's the moon god, the sun god, the rain god, storm god, everything. But if you were to worship one of those gods, then you needed to know that god's name. Otherwise, that god wasn't going to hear you, wasn't going to listen to you, wasn't going to respect you. So the first thing you did was use the name of that deity. So Moses knows the logical question of the people and says, I know what they're going to ask. They're going to ask me, what god is this? Which god of the entire pantheon is this that's going to rescue us out of Egypt? And God gives this incredible answer. Like, it's this, it's this non-answer answer. Because God doesn't give himself a name. He, he gives himself a, a verb. He says, I am who I am. It's the first person imperfect of to be. Some like to translate this, I will be who I will be, or I cause to be who I cause to be. But I'm pretty sure that the simple, I am who I am, is 
probably the best translation of this word. This is, this is God's new revealed name to his people. Before the Exodus narrative in Exodus chapter 3, the people would call God Elohim, how we translate God in Genesis, shortened often to the Hebrew word El, sometimes combined with other titles like El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. But here we have the Hebrew word um, Yahweh. When God says, I am who I am, that's actually the Hebrew word Eyeh, then the Israelites took the, not first person, the third person, he is who he is. That's the word Yahweh. So when you're reading the Old Testament, anytime you see the Lord in all caps, that's a, a signal that the original Hebrew is God's proper name, the name Yahweh. And this is where that name comes from in Exodus chapter 3, when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. This is actually one of the most important verses that come from Exodus, and some would even say from the Old Testament. But you get what God is saying. He's saying, you can't name me. You can't include me as one of the many gods in the Egyptian pantheon. I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer. I'm active. I'm present. I'm overall and above all and in all and through all. And God will very soon back up his claim with all of the plagues that are about to come on the nation of Egypt. God says, I am who I am. I'm the God of your fathers. I haven't forgotten you. I'm here with you. I'm going to be faithful to fulfill my promise. All of those themes and in company or encompass the title, the proper name, Yahweh. So God very graciously answers Moses' first uh, rebuttal, but Moses has a second one in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, Behold, they won't believe me. Listen to my voice, for they'll say, The Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said to him, well, What's in your hand? A staff, he said. And God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand, catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your, their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. <laughs> you can picture what happened here, right? I mean, Moses is saying, they're not gonna believe me. So God graciously gives him a sign. And unfortunately for Moses, he got what he asked for I mean, can you imagine having your staff in your hand? You throw it on the ground, it becomes a snake. I mean, Moses, I know it's in the text. He screamed like a schoolgirl, right? And then he runs the opposite direction like any logical person would do. But can you imagine how much faith it would have taken for Moses when God says, grab that snake by the tail? Like, if that was me, I would have said, yeah, I don't think so. But Moses doesn't do that. There has to be that, like, glare. You know the glare I'm talking about? The you can't be serious right now, right? I, I think that was probably in the text, but Moses is obedient. He grabs the snake by the tail. It turns into a, a staff. And then God gives him two other signs, this leprosy sign where he puts his hand in his cloak and brings out his leprosy on it. Um, and then another sign where God promises he can turn the, the river water of the Nile into blood. God gives him three signs, very graciously replies to Moses' request. But Moses isn't done. He has a third question. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. But Moses said to the Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who's made man's mouth? 
who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Anyone take a speech class in high school, college? Did anyone throw up before or after speech class in high school or college? Public speaking is often listed as one of the top phobias. Um, not too many people like speaking in public. That is not what this text is talking about. This is a speech problem to a whole new level. The text literally reads heavy of mouth or heavy of tongue. Moses says in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, that he has uncircumcised lips. Though I'm not a big fan of that analogy, I, what Moses is saying is he probably had a stutter, right? That he had a really hard time putting his words together. Not a natural leader. He's right. He's 80 years old. He's an ex-convict. He's got a record. And he can't even talk in front of people without stumbling over his own words. But did you notice Moses' subtle critique of God? Did you catch that? Let me make sure I find the right verse. Look at verse 10. Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. Do you catch that? You see what Moses is saying? God, we've been talking for five minutes and my stutter's still here. What's the problem? If you're going to call me to rescue these people out of Egypt, then you could have at least fixed this since I was in your presence and God, God doesn't. It was subtle, but I believe that's what Moses is getting at. But God's reply, again, is very gracious. Moses, I made your mouth. I'm going to give you the words. So Moses is out of excuses. He has no more questions, but you can tell that he still doesn't really want to go. So verse 13, he says, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> like, like, and verse 14 the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him, put the words in his mouth. I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth, and we'll teach you what to do. This is the first time in Exodus, in the Pentateuch, that we see God's anger against Moses. It's not the last time. If you want to read an interesting text, just finish chapter four. You're going to need a commentary to help you understand what in the world a bridegroom of blood is, because I'm really not sure. But we see a couple times that God is frustrated with Moses. Moses was an incredible leader, a godly leader, but he was certainly not a perfect leader. But even in God's frustration, do you hear how he still responds with grace? He says, Moses, I've got your back. Your brother's going to meet you in the wilderness. He can talk and you two are going to make a team. You put words in his mouth, I'll put words in your mouth, you both can talk, and I'll be with you. And with that, Moses is out of excuses. There's no more pushback. He travels back to Midian. He returns his sheep to his father-in-law and asks for his father-in-law's permission, which I find ironic. He's an 80-year-old man. He's asking his father-in-law for permission, that's like totally not our culture, to take his wife and his two boys Egypt. And his father-in-law is gracious, gives him permission. They load up the donkey and they travel back to Egypt. And the rest is history as Moses is the leader 
of the nation of Israel. And in two weeks, we get to come back to the same mountain as Moses and the people have a mountaintop experience in the same place. But as we think about Moses and his life, we think about Exodus chapter 3, I'm convinced there's some valuable takeaways for us. Though Moses was voted least likely to lead two million people out of Egypt, God still chose to use Moses for his glory. But if you and I look at the big picture of Scripture, certainly Moses was not the only person that God used that was a, not a very likely candidate. I mean, think about David. When God called Samuel to go and anoint the next king, he goes to Jesse's house, he has all these boys, and Samuel does what anybody would do. They start with the oldest and work their way down to the youngest. And starts with the oldest, and God says, no, that's not the guy, and he keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, and all of a sudden there's no sons left. And God hadn't given him the picture of who the next king was going to be. So Samuel awkwardly has to go back to Jesse and say, do you have any more sons? And they say, oh yeah, there's one more. He's so insignificant. He's just a shepherd. He's in the field. We didn't even invite him to the coronation ceremony. So they go get David. They bring him in, the runt of the litter. And God says, that's my man. He's going to be the next king. No one expected it. Think about Esther. (laughs) This exiled Jewish girl who somehow becomes queen of the most powerful nation in the world, and God uses her to save the entire Jewish race. Not someone we'd expect. Or think about Ruth, the Moabitess. She was in exile in the land of Israel. She wasn't even ethnically Jewish, but God uses her, and she becomes the great-grandma of King David, who's she's listed in the genealogy accounts of Jesus. Not someone we'd expect. Think about Peter, an uneducated fisherman who had more foot-in-the-mouth moments than anyone else in Scripture, and God uses him as the pillar of the early church. Or think of a guy like Paul. Paul does not paint a very pretty picture of himself in his letters. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10. For they say, they're talking about Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. (laughs) In other words, Paul's a good writer, but listening to him talk, he's really boring. (laughs) That's what they're saying. In other places, Paul talks about this physical condition that he has that probably wasn't very pretty to look at. Paul was not someone we'd expect to be the most successful missionary, church planner, apostle, writer of Scripture. But over and over again, God chooses to use people that we least expect for his glory. Now, our big idea tonight It's not original to me. I don't know where it came from, but I've heard it a couple times. It gives us a great picture of what we see in our text. God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. I want you to think for a moment of how this applies to our salvation. It's not like God's up in heaven looking out over the earth and says, ah, oh, that person's being really obedient. They're a really good person. I think I'm going to save them. Or, yeah, look at this person over, over here. They're, they're being really obedient. I think I'm going to save them. No, that's not how it works. Think of Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies of God. There's nothing that we do by our own righteousness to somehow get God to like us. God doesn't choose us based on our obedience down the road. He chooses us based on his purpose and grace. We respond with faith, with belief with making Jesus king. 
of our hearts. Some of you walked in the door tonight and thought, I've got to clean up my life so I can have a relationship with God. Or I've got to go to church. I've got to start giving. I've got to do all of these things so that I can get to heaven. That's not how it works. By grace, we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We're saved by believing that Jesus died for us, by asking him for forgiveness, by placing our faith in him, by making him king of our life. It's the most important decision that we can make. But think about how our big idea, God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. Think about how that applies to life as Christians. How would you describe sanctification? How do you describe, maybe in another way, how do you describe our, our calling as Christians? Well, some would say we have a, each of us have a very nuanced and specific calling, but maybe we can talk about our calling in general terms. Think of the great commandment. Jesus quotes the Old Testament and says, this is the first, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the two greatest commandments are love God and love people. How about the great commission? That's certainly be our calling. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And then Jesus says, surely I'll be with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. The main verb in that, that passage isn't go, it's actually make disciples. So just those three passages, it summarizes, I think, our calling as Christians. We're called to love God. We're called to love people. We're called to make disciples. That's our calling. That's your calling. If you know Christ, it's my calling. And think of 2 Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power has given us, granted to us everything that we need for a life of godliness. In other words, God's giving us everything that we need to love God, love people, and make disciples. One of the things that he's given us through his spirit is a spiritual gift, a gift that's designed to build up the church, the body of Christ. But sometimes when we think about our giftedness, we like to think about it horizontally. We look across the room and we think, I'm not as gifted as that person. We look at Brian or Bobby or Sarah and say, God, I can't sing like them. You couldn't use me. We look at Andrew and we say, God, I can't preach like him. God, you can never use me. We look at our small group leaders and I think, I can't lead a small group like Jim and Susan. God, you can't use me. Or... You know, I can't make people feel as warm and welcomed. I can't do that one-on-one -on -one thing like Bianca. God, you can't use me. God, I, I can't share my faith like Pastor Dave. God, you can't use me. And we look across the room and we think, I'm not as gifted as that person, as that person, as that person. Therefore, God, you can't use me. We compare our gifting horizontally and we feel inadequate and ill-equipped. Two responses. First, that feeling of inadequacy, that's a good thing. It's a great thing. I think that's right where God wants us. Every year when we go to Mexico, our application for our mission trip in 2024 is going to open up in August. And um, in the past, I've done a lot of the interviews. And every year, 
So we go down and we're camp counselors for missionary kids. It's an incredible week. And every year, like a handful of you will look at me and say, Sam, I'm not qualified. I don't know the right answers. I'm not smart enough. I haven't been a Christian long enough. They're going to ask me something I'm not going to understand. Like, I, 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 can't, I can't do this. And my reply is always the same. That's exactly who we want to take to Mexico. I would way rather take a camp counselor who's humble and dependent on the Lord than someone who thinks they're the best gift to Mexico. Because when we're humble, when we're dependent on the Lord, when we recognize our own inadequacy, then at the end of the week, or at the end of the G180 small group year, the end of One Way Club, and God works through us, who gets the credit? He does, not us. See, a little bit of that inadequacy is okay. Though, I don't think that God wants us to do the horizontal comparing. Because when we compare ourselves to others horizontally, what we're often doing is prioritizing our gifting and our skills over our character. We look around the room and we assume the person who has the most skill, the person who has the most gifting, they're going to be the one who's used the most by God. In our culture, over and over again, we give the, the highest place of prominence to the people who have the most skill. I actually think that's a big mistake. God looks at not the outward appearance, he looks at the heart. But over and over again in our culture, even in evangelicalism, we do the opposite, much to our detriment. Many of you have listened through or are listening through a podcast that's taken the world by storm over the last couple of years, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, it chronicles the incredible growth of a megachurch on the West Coast, but also the implosion that happened shortly thereafter. And if you've listened to it, you know that you could identify reason after reason of why Mars Hill exploded. But for me, there's one reason that rises to the top. The church, the leaders of the church, over and over again, prioritized gifting and skill over character. They were content with a pastor, with leaders who were skilled, who were gifted, who had vision, who could keep people entertained, but didn't have the character to back it up. And over time, that divide grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually the church exploded. But over and over again in Scripture, we see that God prioritizes character above gifting. And that's our man Moses, isn't it? Moses had a terrible resume, horrible but God uses him. Think of how the author of Hebrews describes Moses. You can listen to this, Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him, Jesus, who's invisible. The author of Hebrews is giving us a picture <laughs> that 40 years before Moses' dramatic call in the wilderness, something happened in his heart. 
that not only was Moses a man of character, Moses was a man of faith. And I'm convinced that during those 40 years of exile, that Moses grew in his trust in the Lord, that he grew in his faith, that he grew in his character. Now, did he waver along the way? I'm sure he did. But the man that Moses was, 80 years old at the burning bush, was 40 years in the making. And we see the author of Hebrews paint him in that season as a man of faith. Character is a lot more important than gifting. Think about 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you've read it recently, it's a list of qualifications for church elders and for deacons. You read it recently? Have you ever looked at the list and considered the, the attributes listed? An elder, maybe we would say, is the, the highest um, echelon of leadership within the church. But if you look at the list, any idea how many of the qualifications on that list are skill and giftedness based? Just one. Able to teach. But the rest of the list is all majorly based on character. Now, compare that with what you and I, or even our culture, think a good pastor is. A good pastor's got to preach. He's got to be able to counsel. He's got to be able to cast vision. He's got to be able to balance budgets and raise money and, and care for people and visit people and love people. But over and over again in Scripture, we see that God prioritizes character over gifting. Care more about the spiritual health of your church leaders than their gifting. Maybe some of you someday will have the opportunity to be part of a pastoral search committee. I know some of you have already done that. Care more about character and spiritual maturity. Care more about who your church leaders are than how good they are at doing things like preaching. Look not at outward appearance, but the heart. But how are you? Do you want to be used by God? Do you want to be used to advance God's kingdom? I, I hope the answer to that is yes. But if you do, start with your character. Start building your relationship with God. Dive into the spiritual disciplines. Deny sin in your life. Pursue accountability. Become the same person at home as you are at church and at work and with your friends. I think we often begin at the wrong place. If we want to make an impact for God's kingdom, then we start working on our skills. Like, okay, I've got to learn how to teach, or I've got to grow my leadership, or I'm going to go take a course on small groups, or I'm going to meet with Bianca and learn how I can disciple people, or I'm going to go to Young Adult Lead and learn how I can lead within my personality. Are those all good things? Yeah, those are great things, but they're not the first thing. In our world, in our Christian subculture that cares so much about skills and gifting and talents, God places a premium on a heart of character and a heart of humility. You know, this was a lesson that I learned the hard way in my life. This is how I'll wrap up tonight. When I was uh, 23, I had the job that no 23-year-old should have had. Nine months well, out of uh, Christian college, I took a job in Southern California. I was a worship leader at a church for nine months. Then Nine months in, I got promoted to the job of the worship pastor. Um, though they didn't give me the, the P title, the pastor title, they didn't think I was ready for that, and they were right. Um, but I was overseeing the worship department at a church that boasted 2,500 people on a Sunday morning. 
I had worship leaders that worked for me. I had my own full-time administrative assistant. I had all of my seminary paid for. I had my own expense account. I was at the top of the ministry world as a 23-year-old. At least what I thought was the top of the ministry world. I had my dream job. And everything was going awesome. It was going great. But there were some issues underneath the surface, both in my heart and within the church as a whole. One of the issues was they didn't place a premium on my character. All that they really cared about was that I could produce, that I could get the job done, that worship was going well, whatever that means. But God knew that there were some things going on in my heart that needed to be addressed. So I'll never forget the day. Some of you, I've told you the story. Nine months into my new promotion, that the senior pastor sat down in my office and he pulled the rug out from under my feet. And he said, you're not the worship guy here anymore. You can stay, you can do something else, but you're not staying as the worship guy. And for me, my world was completely crushed because my identity was in my ministry. I thought I was the best gift to worship ministry. And I didn't see this coming. I thought everything was going great. My boss thought everything was going great. My team thought everything was going great. He walks in my office, rips the rug out. And of course, I was bitter. I was angry. There was no way I was going to stay. So though I didn't, didn't get fired, I left on my own accord. It felt like I got fired. And I didn't have any, anywhere to go. So where did I move? Into my parents' basement. And I went from here to here. And I was mad at God. God, look what I was doing for you. Look all the progress I was making. Look the difference I was making. You rip it out from under my feet. What are you thinking? God didn't want my ministry. He wanted my heart. And there was a root of pride, <laughs> big root of pride. There was selfishness. There was spiritual apathy. There was sin that needed to get de dealt with. I was blind to my own blindness. So the Lord did whatever it took and took away the thing that I prized most in my life. But God revealed to me in that season that my character, who I am, is a lot more important than my ministry gifting and my ministry skill, my ministry position. And if there's one thing that I hope we take away from our story of Moses tonight, it's the same thing. God cares a lot more about who you are than what you do. If you want to make an impact for God's kingdom, focus on your heart first. Let me pray. Father, it's humbling when we read an account like Moses, realizing that he used a guy that no one else would have picked for their team. <laughs> and he became one of the greatest leaders in history. And at the end of the day, we know it's you that gets the glory and not Moses. We know that it's you that gets the glory and not us. So, Father, may we live our lives with a posture of humility, desiring to be used by you. But instead of focusing first on the skills and the abilities, give us the discipline, the strength, the courage to focus first on our character, on who we are rather than where we are, on who we are rather than what we're doing for you. So as we take some time to dialogue around our tables, may this be helpful to put into practice some of the things that we heard tonight. In Jesus' name.